Well, this coming Friday is Reformation Day. But it's also the second anniversary of the day that we here at Redeemer joyfully and triumphantly closed on the purchase of this building and the, the one next door. And so it's really appropriate for us to take just a few minutes to raise an Ebenezer. In Scripture, an Ebenezer is a pile of stones that pointed to God. And that pile of stones said to everyone, thus far has the Lord led us. And so we're going to raise an Ebenezer briefly this morning. For those of you who don't know, we had been worshiping in these buildings for about five years. When the church that owned them, a Lutheran church, Reformation Sunday, whew, anyway, they decided to sell this, this building to an individual who was going to gut this entire room and turn it into their uh, private residence. I'm standing just to the side of where the dining room was to be. Actually, I'm in the area where the wet bar would have been. Martini, anyone? But through a series of events and the inter- intervention of the city council and the mayor, we were given 90 days to come up with one, 90 days to come up with $1.6 million to exercise our right of first refusal. And that's what we did. But we should not, we should not have been able to do it. It truly was a David and Goliath moment for us. Little us, no money, against a person of great wealth and great influence. Some of the stories tell of our glowing faith, our glowing faith in the power of God. We thank God for the faith that He gave us to to keep going, to move ahead when we were tired. It would have been easy to give up because this whole thing was ridiculously impossible anyway. Some of the stories are those out of the blue, just in the nick of time, donations that came in that amazed us and kept us going. And we thank God for those stories and and we thank God for those people on whose hearts He laid it to contribute to us. But all of the stories are not like that. Some of the stories that we have to tell from back then are stories of anger and frustration and fear. What are you doing, Lord? Why are you doing this to to us, Lord? Where are you, Lord? Those kind of stories. I wonder now why I, and I wasn't alone, those of you who are here with me, sometimes I wonder in those moments that were difficult, in those moments that were challenging and, and scary, and in those moments that seemed unfair to us, why was our reaction, why was our behavior not discernibly different from those people who do not know the power of God and the love of Christ? Where was the difference in us back then? But more importantly, where's the difference in us right now, in this moment? How are we different now as we continue to face the challenges of of paying off these buildings, of being good stewards of what God has entrusted to us, while at the same time plunging in further, plunging in deeper to the challenges of being a gospel presence here in the place that God has planted us, right in the heart of the city of Charleston being a gospel witness to the uttermost parts of the world which God has called us. We can look back now two years ago and see why God was doing some of the things that He was doing. But what about when we can't see? What about when we don't have two years perspective or five or ten years perspective? How will we act before we understand all the whys and know what God is doing? And what about your life and my life? 
outside of the pulpits, outside of the pews, outside of these walls? What will we do with the challenges that face us in life? The disappointments, the sufferings of the moment that we just don't understand. Now I pray that the story of God will once again make us people of peace, people of faith, people of hope, people of trust, even when we don't understand in every moment. So toward that end, let's look again at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 20 through 22. I want to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning in verse 20, this is the word of the Lord. Fear the Lord your God and serve Him. Hold fast to Him and take your oaths in His name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers who went down into Egypt were seventy in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. Let's pray together. Father, we pray once again, as we pray week by week, that you would be true to your promise uh, to bless the reading and the hearing of your word. We call on you once again, O Spirit of God, to give us understanding of your truth, that you would open our eyes to see what we would not have seen apart from your work, that you would open our hearts to understand what we might not have understood. Your power, Lord, the power of your Spirit, your Word, your truth would change and transform us in every moment of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I tell you, I think that we, I know this, we have been camped on the plains of Moab longer than God's people were literally camped on the plains of Moab. We've been in Exodus chapter, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10 for, for so long. It's taking me a long time to get us across the Jordan River and into the promised land. But listen, who cares? There is so much rich truth to learn about the journey along the way. Truth that helps us live beautifully. Truth that helps us live magnetically as we live in the land of which God has called us to live mysteriously inexplicable lives of faith and hope and joy and peace because of God's truth. How do those people do that? And so we stay here with God's people for yet another week on the, on the plains of Moab, hanging out in their reality, in their present, listening to God speak to them through Moses as they face a future that is yet unknown to them. Now we know the end of their story, but they don't yet know it. They don't know how God is going to use events in their lives to, to shape them, to challenge them, to mold them, to change them, to humble them, even to break them. And just across the Jordan River is the land that God promised to give to His people. But the promised land is by no means a turnkey promised land. See, God's people don't get to call up the realtor and say, Whew. Oh, well, you know, we're, we finally made it. Yeah, 40 years. Yeah, it took us 40 years, but... But here we are. Yeah, we've got all our stuff with us. If you'll just leave the key under the mat, we'll just move ourselves right on in. No. It's not going to happen. Promised land is not turnkey because it contains nations who don't want to leave the promised land. Why would they? It's a lush 
and beautiful land. It doesn't belong to them. They are squatters on God's land. And He has graciously allowed them to be there temporarily, but now God has new tenants, His chosen tenants, that He wants to move onto His property. These nations aren't going to go quietly. Some of those nations are powerful. How are they going to be extricated? Some of those cities are protected by these massive defensive walls like the city of Jericho. How will those walls ever be breached? So how can Moses inspire these people to carry out the task at hand? Well, as always, Moses points his people to God's story, to what God has done, to how God is working out His plan, to how God always meets His people in their present. God always meets His people in their present. Because God's people often don't know in the moment what God is doing. Because God's people don't often know in the moment why God is doing it. But before the explanation comes, before our our understanding comes, if indeed it ever does come, God's people have to trust. We have to have, we're privileged to have hope and joy and peace in every moment. Because God is always God, and you know what that means. God is God, which means He is always glorious. He is always great. He is always gracious. And He is always good. Those are our four G's, aren't they? God is always those things. And those truths about God have to make a difference in our present, always. And that can happen when God's people look at the story of God. And that's where Moses points them. Look in verse 22. Moses says, Your forefathers who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. Now let's think about that story for just a moment. What did it look like for God's people to go down into Egypt? What was that all about? Well, we have to go back in time to a man you know, a man named Joseph, who was the son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. These are the forefathers. These are the patriarchs to whom Moses refers in verse 22. Joseph had ten older brothers, and they didn't like him. They didn't like the the special position and the special favor that their father showed to Joseph. Beautiful cloak that he had made for Joseph. Joseph wasn't the smartest guy either. He would have these dreams and he would go tell them to his brothers who were all older, hey, one day you guys are going to bow down before me. (laughs) So, not very popular with his brothers, so they decide to kill him. They're going to kill him. They can't stand Joseph. But you know the story. Instead of killing him, they decide they're going to sell him into slavery. And that's what they do. And so I'm sure Joseph thought as he was being hauled away in chains. Why, Lord? What did I do to deserve this, Lord? What are you doing to me, Lord? Well, through a series of events, which are always God-ordained events, it got even worse for Joseph. Because not only was he a slave in Egypt, but then he ended up being thrown into an Egyptian prison, into a dungeon. And I'm sure as he sat in that dungeon, he asked, Why, Lord? What did I do to deserve this, Lord? What are you doing, Lord? And then, through another series of events, Joseph was called out of the dungeon to come into the presence of the Pharaoh to interpret some dreams that he had been having. Well, God gave Joseph the interpretation of those dreams. There were going to be seven years of plenty 
coming to the land of Egypt. Bountiful bumper crops. Those seven years of abundance were going to be followed by seven years of famine. A famine that was so severe that the people of Egypt would forget all about the seven years of abundance that had gone before them. Well, after Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream, he said to Pharaoh, look, now you've got to find a discerning man. You've got to find a man who's really wise to collect the bounty during the seven good years so that it can be distributed during the seven bad years. Pharaoh says to his counselors, can we find anyone like this man in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh turns to Joseph and he said, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You're going to be in charge of my palace and all my people are going to submit to your orders only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. And then Pharaoh takes this guy who's just been pulled out of the dungeon. He had to clean up and shave before he even came into Pharaoh's presence. He takes his signet ring off and he puts it on Joseph's finger and he puts on a, a beautiful linen robe on him and a gold chain around his neck. And then he commands Joseph to ride in the chariot beside him. You are my second in command. And as the chariot drove by, men, men shouted, Make way! That's Joseph. Just from the dungeon. I'm sure in that moment he thought, What are you doing, Lord? What's going on? What did I deserve to do this? An amazing story. Well, everything happened. Just as Joseph said it would happen. The famine did come. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the world, according to Scripture. And famine even came to the house of Jacob, the father of Joseph. Jacob had believed Joseph to be long dead. And when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to these older brothers of Joseph, why do you just keep looking at each other? See, there was nothing to do because there was this famine. He said, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. So just so we don't miss it, this is a life and death situation for Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham the patriarch to whom God had promised ancestors as numerous as the stars of the sky, the man to whom God had promised a land. What are you doing, Lord? How will you fulfill this promise if we all starve to death? Food is so readily available to us. We don't think about it. If our crops fail, no big deal. We'll truck in food from somewhere else and we can't get it that close. We'll just fly it in. But famine is severe. Just for some perspective, the great famine in Ireland, it lasted seven years, like this biblical account. From 1845 to 1852, and during that period, a million people died. A million people starved to death. Famine is serious. And so Joseph's sons went down to Egypt. And when they went there, they didn't recognize Joseph, their brother, and Joseph didn't identify himself to them. But Joseph gave them grain and he said, go and take grain back for your starving households. They were starving. So when all that grain was used up, Jacob sent his sons back a second time to Egypt. This time, Joseph revealed himself. And he said this to his brothers, do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. 
But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. So that's the story. That's how God's people ended up going down to Egypt amid difficult, dire, not easy to understand why, Lord, circumstances. Some of the why questions become clear in the moment. Like, why was Joseph sold into slavery? Well, now they know in the moment. Because... God was going to deliver His people through him. But some of the questions didn't get answered. Why the famine? How can God fulfill His promise if His people starve to death? How can God fulfill His promise if He has to move His people out of the promised land and take them to Egypt? Everything was great for God's people in the beginning when they got to Egypt. Joseph was the golden boy the son who had gone off and made good. Second most powerful man in Egypt. And God blessed his people. And Jacob's family grew and it grew and it grew and it grew from 70 people. It grew to become so numerous that they filled the land, according to Scripture. And then a king came along. You know the story. And he didn't know Joseph. He didn't know anything about him. And so this king said, look, the Israelites have become much too numerous. Let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they'll overpower us. They'll become too numerous. If war breaks out, they'll side with our enemies. They'll fight against us and leave the country. And so what do they do? They enslave God's people. Treat God's people cruelly. So that God's people, God's people suffered bitterly. Not for a week. Not for a month, not for a year, not for a decade, not for a century. 400 years. You know, God's people asked in that time, why, Lord? What did we do to deserve this? What are you doing, Lord? Look again in verse 22. Your forefathers went down 70. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the sky. Why, Lord? What are you doing, Lord? Well, God is fulfilling His promise to His people. God is building a nation numerically in the confines of slavery when these people wouldn't be free to go where they wanted to go and do when they wanted to do. When they had to stay right there confined in Egypt, God multiplied them so that they grew and grew and grew until they achieved nation status. Multiple millions of people. God was building this nation numerically because God intended to bless the nations of the world through these people. Why, Lord? What are you doing, Lord? God is building the character of this nation as well. Look up in verse 18. A few verses up. It says, God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving food and clothing, and you are to love those who are aliens. For you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. See, God's going to bless the nations of the world through His people. That's what He promised. People who have experienced suffering can understand 
and bless those who are suffering. People who have been oppressed can understand and bless those who are oppressed and determine in their hearts never to oppress anyone else. People who know what it's like to be powerless and to have no voice can understand and be a blessing and be a strong for those who are weak and be a voice for those who have none. People who know what it's like because they've experienced what it's like not to be in control can understand and be a blessing to those whose lives are out of control. People who know what it is to be helpless and hopeless can understand and be a blessing to others who feel helpless and hopeless. People who know what it's like to be treated badly just because they were different can understand and be a blessing and never want to treat others badly just because they're different. God was building the character of His people. God was making His people people of compassion. The widows of the world should be safe in the hands of people who had experienced what God's people had experienced. The orphans of the world should be safe in the hands of of people who had experienced what God's people had experienced. The aliens of the world. The aliens of the world should be safe in the hands of people who had experienced what God's people had experienced. And the hopeless should find hope and the helpless should find help and the godless should find God through the hands of people who had experienced what God's people had experienced. So here on the plains of Moab, God's people could see some of the reasons why God's story had played out as it did for their forefathers. Made sense to them. They could even be thankful for it. Hindsight is 2020. They could see how God was fulfilling His promises. But now, in their present, God is calling them to fulfill yet another promise that He made. It's recorded in Genesis 17.8. God said to Abraham, The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. That's the promise of God. So if ever the way that God chose to fulfill that promise in the presence should not make sense to them. If ever they did not understand or could not explain why they should trust that God is God. That God has got it. That He knows what He's doing. And so their reactions, their behavior, every moment, especially those moments that they did not understand, the dungeon moments, the famine moments should shout, I have a God who's in control. I have a God who's working all things together to, to bring about His plan which is good and perfect and well-pleasing. I will love Him. I will serve Him. I will trust Him. And so too, for you and for me this morning, we've got to be good stewards of the moment, whatever the moment is. See, we we think of stewardship in terms of the stuff that we have, in terms of the money we have. We think about stewarding those things well, our possessions. We think of, of giving out of what God has given to us because God calls us to that responsibility. And we remember the story that Jesus told about the servant that was trusted with what is our equivalent of $5,000 and that servant went out and turned the 5000 into 10000 
The master gave another servant $2,000, and that servant went out and turned the $2,000 to $4,000. And the master said, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, you've done well with the little I've entrusted you. I want to give you much. Come on, enter into your master's joy. We think of stewardship in that way. Managing the blessings of the stuff that God entrusts to us. But is that all that we are to be good stewards of? What else might God be calling you and me to steward in our lives? What was the Apostle Paul given to manage? To be a good steward of? A thorn in the flesh. That's what he was given to manage. 2 Corinthians 12.7 Paul writes, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. We don't know what the thorn was. There's been lots of speculation over the last 2,000 years about what it might have been. Could have been a psychological struggle. Guilt over the way he had persecuted the church before he became a believer. Could be continuing uh, temptation in the present. It could have been the thorn of persecution. Most likely it was some sort of physical condition. The guess is everything from uh, weak eyes to a disfiguring eye disease to malaria to migraine headaches. headaches. We don't know what the thorn was. We just know that Paul didn't want the thorn in his life. He didn't want to deal with the effects of the thorn in his life and he probably made a bargain with God. Lord, just imagine if you take this thorn away, how much more I could do for you. Because we make those deals. We can speculate that Paul may have asked, why me, Lord? And we know that he prayed three times for the Lord to take it away. And in like in that, he was like his Savior. Jesus. Who was in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before he went to the cross. Praying, Abba, Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. Take this up from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. But God, who is Abba, who is Father, did not take away the cup or the cross from Jesus or the thorn in the flesh from Paul. But Paul did get an answer from the Lord. The thorn would stay. God didn't tell him why it would stay. He just said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. See, the thorn was going to remain. And Paul was going to have to be dependent. He was not going to be free to go off on his own. To successfully be a steward of that thorn in every moment, Paul would have to depend on the grace of and the power of Christ. But listen, that's the reality that transformed Paul's life. So that he didn't just endure the thorn, he actually delighted in it. He actually delighted in it. Listen to what he writes. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, and insults, and hardships, and persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak then I am strong. 
See, weakness in Paul's life and struggles in Paul's life and thorns in the flesh in Paul's life, they were like pipelines. Pipelines through which more of the grace and the power of Christ flowed to Paul. And, and, and I'm just guessing, but, I, but when Paul experienced the power and the presence of Christ in the midst of the struggle, I think he, he became so addicted to it, to that grace and that power, that the struggle was worth it toward him, to him. That's why he delighted in them. Because Paul knew that he knew that he knew that Jesus was real, that Jesus was with him, and that Jesus cared. And pity those who don't have such an experience. And so it becomes a theme of his letters to the Corinthians. He, he writes there, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom but on God's power. For to be sure, Christ was crucified in weakness, yet He lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in Him, yet by God's power we will live with you to serve Him. See, life is about our place in God's story. And yet most of us are guilty, myself included, of both focusing on our lives, just our lives. Why me, Lord? What are you doing? I don't deserve this, Lord. Instead of seeing our lives as part of a bigger story, our lives are lived by the power of God. Why do you think God reveals Himself to us in His Word as a rock, as a, a fortress, as a strong tower that the righteous runs into and is safe. See, it's only when we look at stories like this one that we can get outside of ourselves, outside of our culture, outside of our surroundings, outside even of our own time and our own life situation to get God's perspective on the story. Everything seems like the end to us or everything's so big, so overwhelming in our personal lives. In this very moment, even you, even some of you here, you're, you're struggling. There's some tragedy. There's some frustration. There's some disappointment. Some of them are bitter ones, and you ask, why, Lord? Why me, Lord? What are you doing, Lord? In our national lives, now we can look. We can see the moral decay. We can see the social decay. And, and for some of us, it makes our heads spin about how quickly Things seem to be unraveling and we can't ever, we can't imagine ever being any different than it is now. Of it ever reversing itself. So we ask, Lord, why? What are you doing? Well, we remember. Our forefathers went down into Egypt, 70, slavery. The Lord made them as numerous as the stars. Dungeons, famine, 400 years of slavery. See, we look to God and His story and we have hope. So that in our every action, in our every reaction, in every moment, we can be at peace, we can have faith, we can trust, we can hope. All is well because God is in control. You know what? I know that may sound trite, but I don't care. Because it's true. When I first became a pastor, man, I hated to visit the hospital especially if it's a difficult situation, because I thought, Craig, you better have a good answer to why. 
before you go to the hospital. Well, I never wanted to go because I never knew why. I didn't want to go to this funeral home for the same reason. I want to counsel people for the same reason because I can't explain why things are happening. But man, God sent me free from that obligation. I don't have to justify God. I can't justify Him and you can't either. When people say to us, well, if God is going to allow something like that in my life, if God is going to allow this or that and not do something about it, then, then I'm not going to love Him. I'm not going to serve Him. I'm not going to believe in Him. Well, you know what? Then don't. And I don't mean that to be insensitive. But, but don't. It's not going to make God cease being God. And it's not going to make God stop fulfilling His plan. And working all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Besides that, the cross of Christ shouts God's love to us. On the cross, He gave His life. On the cross, He implemented. And by His resurrection, He empowered this great rescue plan to rescue us. Not just for these fleeting years on earth that are so brief, but for all eternity. All we have to do is have faith. And if that's not enough to prove God's good will toward us, if that's not enough to make us say, it's okay. It's well with my soul in every moment. Then I don't know what is. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You again for Your story. You could have left us in darkness and confusion as to who You are and how You act. But Lord, because You are gracious, You have recorded Your story through thousands and thousands of years for us to read stories that reveal Your character and who You are and how You deal in the lives of Your people. And Lord, in the moment, it doesn't make sense to us very often. We don't understand why. How can suffering, how can tragedy ever be good? It never feels good. And yet, Lord, we see over and over again that You can use it for Your glory and for our good. Lord, there's a greater purpose for our lives than just our lives as individuals. You care for us as individuals. You know the number of hairs on our heads. We are important to You. We are loved by You. But nevertheless, we're just one tiny part of the bigger story that's going on. So Father, we pray that You would help us take the long view, keep our eyes fixed on You, look to Your story over and over again and be encouraged by it and be filled with hope by it because who You are, who You were, You are and evermore will be just as much a reality to us as it was to the people thousands of years ago. You are glorious. You are great. You are gracious. And you are good. So we give you thanks for that. Pray that we'll keep our eyes fixed on you so that we can truly from the heart in every moment say and sing, it is well. It is well with my soul. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Take your bulletins and Turn the back, you'll find our last song as well with my soul. Let's stand as we're dismissed by singing together.